Well, good morning. I uh, heard that Jackson encouraged you yesterday to give me uh, birthday gifts of toilet paper and other things into my yard. I appreciate that none of you took him up on that instruction. You won't be seeing much Jackson anymore up here. <laughs> That's true. So how are you all? Are you guys having a good summer? Good. Yeah, I think we are too. We're just coming back from vacation. We had a great vacation. Spent a couple of weeks, uh, uh, first maybe about a week over on the Oregon coast, and uh, then came home, took some short trips from there, and just hung around home. It's very restful. Didn't start out that way. Started out very frustrating. I had a very busy uh, start to this summer, and by the time it got time for vacation, I felt I needed it, and I felt I deserved it, and I felt, by gosh, I was going to have it. <laughs> but the uh, thing about it was that all of my plans started falling apart, and uh, everybody in my family had a different agenda for what we were going to do, and nobody really got excited about my plans for our vacation. They didn't hate them, but they just weren't excited about them. And, uh, so I started worrying that I was going to waste all my time off, you know. I wasn't going to get any rest. It wasn't going to be refreshing. So I started grabbing the time and pushing my agenda and started to withdraw from my family just to get what I needed. And I just found my anxiety level just kept going up. It was not refreshing. It was depleting. Then I started thinking about some of the things that we've been talking about from First Peter. You know, last time I taught, the passage was about getting rid of all of this selfish garbage that gets in the way and distracts us. Instead, spending time feeding from the pure milk of the Word. So I started just taking some time to spend in the Word. I've got a little devotional book I read as well. and Just spending time listening to God, being with Him, remembering that's what this is all about anyway. All the rest of this stuff is, is not the core. The core is time with Him. And that passage also said, uh, don't you know, follow, don't go after all the things that people around you are going after, like vacations and rest. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things, but demanding it, having to get it, making that the focus. But instead, Peter told us to live beautiful lives, lives that reflect God's beauty. So I started asking God to help me get free of, of kind of that frantic desire to rest you know, that, that frantic desire to get what I thought I needed. And to really start loving my family. Submitting to them. Looking at what they needed. And i got to tell you, this was probably the most restful vacation that I can remember. It was just a sweet, relaxed time. Now, you guys have been talking about uh, submission while I've been gone. I'm sorry to miss uh, Dan Brown's teaching. I heard a lot of good from that. And... Dennis and Jackson both teaching about submission. And they talked about what submission to, the, to governing authorities, submission to others within the body, submission uh, to our employers, submission to our husbands, submission to our wives. And all this talk about submission. And, and apparently they explain that submission really does mean to come under somebody, to put yourself under them. To, to count their needs as more important, to give up your own personal agenda, to focus on what they need and, and, and where they're going. That's hard stuff. Uh, to, to die to your own 
needs to die to your own agenda, your own plans, and care more about others, that uh, really feels like the hard part of Christianity. In some sense it is, that dying to ourselves. But Peter tells us this morning, and this is probably the most important thing I'll say this morning, submission is our peace and our joy. It's the good life. Again, that's sometimes pretty hard to hold on to. It feels like a burden, but it's a freedom. We talk about having to submit to those in authority over us, about having to submit to those we're in fellowship with, about having to submit to, to our families. Even our language kind of betrays our, our confusion. See, I, I am free in Christ. I don't have to do anything. Jesus loves me. He has redeemed me. I am acceptable, delightful to the Father because what Jesus did on the cross, and I don't have to do anything to add to that. Just accept it. Receive it. See, in Christ, I'm free. So the gospel isn't that now that I'm a Christian, I have to submit. The good news is that now that I am a Christian, I am free to submit and to enjoy the peace and the joy and the freedom that comes out of that. I can be like my beautiful Lord who is submissive. I can submit from the heart. And, and apart from Christ, I can't do that. So you see, submission is not a burden to be unhappily born. It's a privilege that we can gladly embrace. I uh, remember reading an interview... Uh, with uh, Agnes, Let's see if I can say her last name right. Uh, it's Boyaksu. How many of you know who Agnes Boyaksu is? That's Mother Teresa's real name. Now here's a woman who uh, has submitted herself to the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. Here's a woman who, for many years before she was well known and, and famous had no idea where the money would come from to buy medicine and food for people who were dying in her arms. And I started thinking about my own life. I mean, what kind of pressure did she live under? If, if people's very lives depended on what I did, if I had that pressure to find food, to find money for medicine for these people every day, then I would run around even more frantically than I already do. The uh, interviewer asked her how she handles that kind of pressure. And her response stunned me. She smiled and she said, it's pure joy. It's pure joy. And I could have identified if she had said, well, it's tough. There are moments of joy, few and far between, just enough to keep me going. And I'd say, yeah, that's the way it is. That's not what she said. She said, it is pure joy. Joy, constant joy, deep joy in the midst of the pain and loss and heartache. Now, what's her secret? Her secret is submission. She has submitted herself completely to God, to her Lord. And out of that submission to her Lord, she then submits to those that she serves. See, there's no struggle in her life for control. That's already decided. God is in control. And because of that, 
she's free to put her focus, her energy, where her master has assigned her. And her assignment is simply to love and comfort the sick and the dying, to hold them, to speak lovingly to them, to to minister to them with whatever resources God provides. But God has to provide the resources. He's in charge. He's got to carry the responsibility. He's got to take care of the details. He is in charge. You see, if she wanted to be in charge, she would have to assume all of those responsibilities, and it would crush her. There'd be no joy there, and she'd have no time to do the part that she can do. But she doesn't want to be in charge. She wants him to be in charge because she actually trusts him. I mean, in real life, not just in theological theory, she really believes he'll take care of it. And so she's free to do the part that he's assigned her as her master. She's free to rejoice in that, to feel the freedom and the joy of doing that, leaving the rest, leaving the concern, leaving the pressure in his hands. And that's what we're talking about. That's what submission is all about. That's, that, 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 that's why we're talking so much about it, why Peter stresses it so much. We submit to God. And out of submission to God, then we submit to those he places in our lives. Because we really do trust him for our needs and for all of the details, we're free to put our attention where he wants it, loving them, encouraging them, seeking their needs. You see, submission to God always leads to love for others, always. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 8. We're going to read that, verse 8 and a little bit of verse 9. This is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. This just flows out of all of this discussion about submission. I'll read it to you for those who don't have a Bible. Finally... All of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers. Be compassionate and be humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. See, Peter starts finally, because this is the conclusion of his whole discussion on submission that he started back in chapter 2, verse 12. There he says, live such beautiful lives that people will glorify God. And then he immediately starts to tell us that those lives are lives of submission. Lives like Jesus' life. Then he goes through and tells us what that looks like in a variety of relationships, a variety of circumstances. So now he kind of brings it all together. This is the summary. And he says, live in harmony with one another. Literally, it means to be of the same mind, the same spirit with others. And what this describes is people who talk things through, who really understand each other, understand each other's hearts, are are people who have the same commitment to unity, to loving each other. This isn't people who agree on every doctrine, every detail, every opinion, every preference. We're talking unity, not unanimity. These are people who share a bedrock commitment to each other. See, this is one of the most important priorities that God gives us in Scripture. He repeats it over and over, all the way through Scripture. This is the heart of Jesus' prayer in John 17, when he prays that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. This is the the mark 
of true Christianity, love for each other. It's not a kind of an optional accoutrement to your faith. This is a core value. Loving each other, even when we disagree. But again, this is our freedom, our joy, to be able to love like that. To be able to love people we deep down disagree with. To have the freedom to, to love people who, who, who we rub wrongly with. Who, who, who may irritate us. But to say, because I love my Lord, I love this person. And then to pursue them with, uh, with honesty, with love. Address the differences between us. I was talking about a week ago to a man by the name of Dick Scroggins. Dick is uh, one of the, the primary leaders of a movement in Rhode Island. Uh, house church movement that is a very important movement right now. It's really affecting New England with the gospel. And he says the biggest problem they face, the number one issue that they have to keep coming back to and teaching on, he said about 70% of their time and teaching goes into this, into conflict resolution. Because Christians don't know how to get along. And they don't know how to address Problems when they come up. We've been so uh, absorbed in our society that when tension comes up, we run away. We just stay away. We withdraw. Go find somebody else to be friends with. Go find another church. Go find another group of people. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to learn, to love each other. And without knowing how, without having a roadmap for all the details, Dependent on Jesus and His love. Stepping into that and saying, Brother, I want to work it out. Let's figure it out together. I'm going to open my heart. And we're going to see what we see. That's where you're going to grow up. That's where I'm going to grow up. That's where we're going to learn to be like Jesus. Where it really gets put to the test. Where we really see His wisdom. And come to understand what He can do. Again, this is an incredible privilege. We can disagree with brothers, still love them. Not just love the ones that we already get along with. Not when everybody is getting along, but when things come up that would divide us. That's our freedom. That's our privilege to be harmonious. That's our calling. So, like Don uh, in his prayer asked, who do you need to be harmonious with? With whom do you need to be reconciled? And then Peter tells us to be sympathetic. That is to feel each other's joys and to feel each other's sorrows. This is the opposite of selfishness, being absorbed in our own condition. This is the freedom to to escape the tyranny of our own needs, our own desires, and to really care about what somebody else is feeling, to ask questions of them. To, to, to draw it out and, and to step into those feelings with them because they're that important to you. It says love as brothers. And brotherly love is supportive love. There's nothing that brothers won't do for each other other than hopefully betray their Lord, be disloyal to their Lord. But brotherly love is a doing love. It's a giving love. It's a supportive love. And he says, be compassionate, literally tender-hearted. Some translations actually translate this word to be kind. 
Be thoughtful of how sensitive, how what you say, what you do is going to affect them. Be kind. And he says, be humble. The word here literally means be friendly. Be friendly. Not, not, not pulling back from someone, not looking down on someone, not feeling superior to someone because of the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the color of their skin, uh, their social group, whatever. None of that stuff matters. He says, be friendly. Be genuinely open. Accepting. Be genuinely friendly with each other. Then he says, uh, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. See, when we are submitted to God, leaving our own reputations, our, our financial and physical well-being in His hands, we are actually free to bless those who harm us. And this is radical stuff. In Romans 12, God says, Do not take vengeance into your own hands. I will repay. He'll take care of it. See, it's not that we don't care about justice. And we were built. God made us to really care about justice. We can't stand it when the bad guys win. We really get upset when people harm us for no reason. Hurt us. We want justice. That's inborn. But what God says is you can comfortably leave that to me. I will take care of it. Trust me, I will take care of it. I promise you. Therefore, you are freed up to do your assignment. I'll take care of that part. Here's the part I want for you. Love them. Bless them. Why? This is a profound freedom. The word bless there means to speak well of or speak well toward, to build up with your words. It refers to praising somebody. It refers to to telling somebody something favorable favorable about another person. See, it's not just that you don't take a shotgun and go take care of that guy who damaged your reputation at work or among your friends. It's that you actually speak well of them. And we often say, well, words aren't that big a deal. We tear people down to another person or we're critical. I didn't hit them. No, he says, speak well of them. Build them up with your words, not tearing them down. Again, this is radical stuff. This is amazing stuff that we actually have the freedom in Christ to live that way, to do that. Sometimes this is hard to imagine. This kind of behavior. But this is our Lord's behavior. This is the behavior of our loving Heavenly Father. And this is the behavior that we are free to exhibit. Let's go back to to verse 9 read from there. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says that you are called to this. This is, this is part of your basic calling. To, to, to live like this, to trust God enough for, for the, the rest, for the details, for the big picture, that you can honestly be loving, be forgiving, 
do good things for people. You are freed up to be lovers, to be beautiful, to love each other. And when that, we, we get our attention off of that. When, when that's no longer near the center of our heart and our focus, then we miss our calling. We miss our purpose. And beyond that, we miss the good life. Now, what do you think about when you think about the good life? You know, lots of money, lots of leisure, a, a deck chair on a luxury ship. Is it fame? Is it power? Prestige? I was reading uh, last week's Newsweek on all of these the new rich, the multi-billionaires. And I can't even think in those kind of terms. Now, that must be the good life, to get, be able to buy anything you want. It's not. You can have all of those things and still be miserable, still be absolutely lonely, have no peace, no joy. Because these things uh, that the world holds out are not what make life good. They aren't the key to, to peace, joy, satisfaction. See, as hard as it is to really believe, what Peter's telling us here is true. God wants us to live this way. Because he wants us to enjoy life. Not because he wants to place a burden on us. He wants us to enjoy his blessing. He wants us to experience the joy, the pure joy that Mother Teresa was talking about. God knows life. He designed it. He knows what will really satisfy. Peter uh, is quoting Psalm 34 here. When he says, you know, whoever would love Life, see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. You know, if you want to love life, if you want to see good days, this is what you got to do. And the things that David lists there in his psalm are, are the same things that Peter's been talking about. Just different ways of saying the exact same thing. David not only said that, that, that if you want to see, if you want to love life and see good days... Do this. He also says that if you do these things, God will take care of you. Again, the reason that we are free to put our attention on our assignment, the assignment our master gives us, is that we trust him. Our focus can be on loving, forgiving, doing good, because we genuinely trust him to take care of us. Of the rest. It's like uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6 Seek first his kingdom, and all the rest will be added unto you. And when he's, uh, that's said in the context, he's just been talking about food and clothing and housing and, and, and these kinds of things. Now, it's not that we don't give any attention to these things, that we never think at all about what we're going to eat or buying clothes or a, a house or vacations. So we don't worry about these things, we don't focus on them, they're not the center. The things that God will take care of as we focus on the center. They aren't what preoccupy us. We uh, keep our priority on the job that we have been given. And honestly trust our Lord to take care of the rest. Then Peter asks in verse 13, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, usually, 
People don't dislike you because you love them, because you speak highly of them, because you do good to them. All too often we, we get confused about what our Lord calling us to do, what honors Him, and we begin to speak the truth harshly. Or we act selfishly and then, then we justify it using all our Christian jargon. And what people are reacting to is not our zealousness for good works. It's our petty, self-absorbed attitudes. See, often we mistakenly think that we've been given the job of changing people. And when we can't do it, we get frustrated. And we begin to resent them. And we treat them poorly. And then when they react to our poor attitudes, we cry, persecution. But the fact is that even if you are loving, even if you, you are building with your words, not tearing down, even when, when you are being good to people, even if you did it perfectly like Jesus did, there will be some who resent us, who reject us, who defame us. Verse 14 But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, how are we blessed? Because people pick on us for doing right. Well, that word blessed there, it's different than the one in verse 9. In verse 9, it meant to speak well of. Here it means to be happy. Our happiness is not dependent on others' opinion of us or how they behave toward us. We want people to think highly of us. We want them to speak well of us. We want them to treat us kindly. And it genuinely hurts when they don't. Sometimes it's, actually, it's heartbreaking when we really care about them and they treat us poorly. But our blessings aren't contingent on their opinions or their behavior one way or the other. Our blessings are in Christ. In Christ, I am acceptable to God. I have all of my sins forgiven. I have the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit showing me what's right. And then His power in my life to help me do what's right. And I have all the joy and the peace, the satisfaction that come from these things. You see, my blessings are in Christ. My happiness is solidly built on that. And only God can give these things or take them away. No one else can give me such joy and peace, nor can they take it away. And that's why Peter says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened or literally be made anxious. Don't get anxious about what they're anxious about. Here Peter is quoting Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 8, God is telling Isaiah to not get sucked into worrying about what everybody around him is worried about. I mean, people are anxious about this, and they're worried about that, and they're going after this. And God says, wait a minute, Isaiah, you listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. Keep your attention on me. Let them flop around out there. See, the people around you are anxious. Because they're trying to find their peace in their possessions, and they can lose their possessions. That's very insecure. Or they've got to get more to, to try to get it. And, and they live in fear. Or they're trying to find security in, in reputation. And reputations get destroyed like that. They, they, there's too much for them to lose because they have no firm foundation. And so they're anxious. And it's very difficult not to become anxious when everybody around you is anxious. It's contagious. 
You know, that's the whole chicken little principle. You know, the sky is falling. And if everybody thinks the sky is falling and I don't, there must be something wrong with me. And especially if they start resenting me because I'm not going along with them and saying the sky is falling. See, but God's saying, oh, don't get sucked up into that. You don't need to. The sky is not falling. That you have a solid roof over your head. God Himself who loves you and who will care for you. You don't have to become anxious about what they are anxious about. You don't have to get sucked in to being driven by fear. To try to cover yourself and protect yourself and provide for yourself. You don't have to be driven by fear. You don't have to be anxious. Instead, let these hardships that you encounter in life when it seems like it's not really working or, or, or others' mistreatment of you or even your own temptation to become anxious and fearful. Let those things move you to further establish Jesus as Lord in your life. Verse 15, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Now what's he talking about here? What does it mean to set apart Christ as Lord? That simply means to kneel before him in the throne room of your heart, submitting to him as he sits on the throne of your life. It means reaffirming your submission to him. It means when things get scary, not getting up and running, bolting, but coming to him and kneeling again in peace, believing that he's got it under control and that he'll give you your assignment. And getting up and, and leaving that throne room with that peace and loving that person who hurt you. And, and listening to that person who's hurting. Going after that brother or sister with whom you need to be harmonious with, you need to be reconciled with. See, submission... To Jesus as Lord is what this is all about. Now, one of the sad uh, realities of, of modern Western Christianity is that, that we've bought into the idea that there can be uh, a relationship with the Lord without Him being Lord. We've separated salvation and lordship. You know, like you'd be a Christian, but not have Jesus as your Lord. You can, you, you, you can have salvation but not be kneeled before Him. It's kind of like you've, you've got your, your basic Christianity with Lordship, and then for a cheaper price, you get to strip down Christianity without Lordship. And Lordship's for those who want a little more, who want, to, who want to go farther. But it's not the way it is. See, the same faith that enables us to accept what Jesus did on the cross for us is the same faith Faith that causes us to kneel before Him in submission. Faith means trusting Him, believing that He's good, that He's loving, that He is wise, He's smart enough to figure it out, that He's able to do what He says, that He's trustworthy. And see, that faith, that belief, is what enables us to accept what He did on the cross in payment for our sins, to accept that He did all that's necessary so that we come to the Father without trying to do it ourselves, without trying to earn His affection. But that same faith is the faith that kneels before Him and asks Him as your Master, 
for the strength and the wisdom to obey. So many people are walking around suffering all kinds of confusion and chaos in their lives because they have not submitted themselves to Jesus as Lord. They claim Him as Savior, but not as Lord. They are, they are not submitted to Him. They, they are not truly His disciples, following Him and wanting more than anything else in life to become like him, And as a result, they're still making choices and decisions in contradiction to his word, in contradiction to his instruction and his direction. And their lives are filled with confusion and destruction. And peace and hope are just glimmers out there, shadows just beyond reach. Well, let me love you enough to tell you that's not the way it is. That's not God's design. His plan is for you to trust Jesus enough to submit yourself to Him and to experience the peace and the satisfaction and the joy that comes out of that. His plan is for you to really be His disciple, following Him, learning from Him, listening to Him, obeying Him, becoming more and more like Him. To be a disciple like, like Peter and John. Peter and John messed up a lot, but they always came back. And accepted Jesus' acceptance of them. Learned from it. Were taught by Him through it. They just didn't run away. See, being a disciple doesn't mean you're perfect. But it means you hungrily accept that forgiveness. And learn where it takes you from here. We all need forgiveness. Every day. All the time. But being a disciple does mean that you recognize that He is Master. And we submit to Him. Again, this is, this is all that we're talking about. This is where you're going to find peace, freedom, joy. Not in some truncated Christianity. That's just a shallow religion or where Jesus is just one of many good things in your heart. No, you're going to find that joy and satisfaction when Jesus is set apart as Lord in your heart. As He is set apart as Lord in your heart, what's in your heart comes out. Like Jesus said on many occasions, out of the overflow of the heart, a person speaks. Our actions come from our heart. What's in there comes out. And if what's in there is Jesus, and He is in control, what's going to come out is His character. His submissive, loving character. If He's Lord, your life will be beautiful. It will be different. It will be shocking. You will love people who've harmed you. You'll really care about your neighbor. You will listen to people and their needs and their feelings rather than just wait your turn to tell your stories. You will not be caught up in the illusion of financial security or the delusion of prestige and superiority. You won't be caught up and trying to, to gain control and dominance, but rather submitting and loving. And as you live like this, people are going to notice. And they're going to wonder, what enables you to live like that? Well, then at that point, with the same attitude of submission, of gentleness, of respect, be ready to explain it to them. Verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Be ready to tell them, to share with them what God has given you so that they can find the good life. They can find life. But Jan Nielsen is a friend of mine. She is a woman whose behavior is different, a person whose submission behavior makes me want to ask the reason for the hope that's within her. You see, each of us need to think through that reason, to be ready to tell somebody what it is. What is that hope? What, how did you come by it? How does it affect your life? So simply as an example, someone explaining the hope within her, I've put Jan on the spot and asked her to come up this morning and explain the hope that's within her. And Jan was uh, skiing this last uh, yesterday and injured herself, so she's playing injured, so... <laughs> oh, I will fall down. <laughs> I was actually trying to keep up with the younger generation. <laughs> uh, for one moment in time, I, it was like, look, kids, no, just one ski. And then the next moment, uh, my body did a lot of contortioning, and so today I, uh, it's rebelling. So <laughs> thanks, Chris, for those kind words. Um, and he asked me this week if I would talk about the hope that is within me. I felt very inadequate, not only to express with words, what was deep inside my heart, but I also felt inadequate to speak in front of all of you with my simple words when many of you could speak so eloquently on this topic. But you know, when someone asks you to explain the hope that is within you, you have a wonderful opportunity. So let me try to tell you about the hope that is within me this morning. Just recently, during my prayer time, I was feeling so blessed by God and welling up with thanksgiving. And I started listing those things that I was thankful for. And at the top of my list was my loving husband, Jerry. And as soon as thanksgiving for Jerry passed my lips that morning, the thought came to me that this present blessing could quickly change like it has for many of you, with um, untimely death or divorce. It came to my mind how thankful I was for Jerry's job. But again, I recognized the possibility of job loss through maybe illness or corporate downsizing or takeover. I was very thankful for a home but that, too, could be taken away with financial setback, fire, or natural disaster. Our family at that time was experiencing good health. But for how long? You see, I was experiencing quiet waters, so to speak, and yet I knew that my future um, was uncertain. uncertain. And not only was it uncertain, but it was mostly out of my control. I certainly wanted quiet waters to follow me all the days of my life. But in my prayer closet that morning, God gave me no guarantees. 
Uncertainty often produces fear. And so that morning as I was praying, I had to go back to that place where I had gone before and found that it was the only place that keeps my heart at rest and my head willing to face forward into the wind as I move out into those uncharted waters ahead. Now this kind of hope that I have is not like a cross-your-fingers kind of hope or a hope that says, okay, Jan, buck up, think positively, and it'll all work out. No, I'm not talking about that kind of a hope. I'm talking about a kind of a hope that anchors me to something sure and solid that I can count on, not only for what's going to happen in the future, but what I can count on and experience in the present as well. Now, as you hear me talk, you know that I have a need for security. And so this kind of hope isn't conjured up by me in an attempt to make me feel more secure. It is based on three things. First of all, my hope is based on what the Bible says is true. Secondly, on what I experience is true. And thirdly, from what other Christians have shared with me out of their personal experience. My hope starts with the knowledge that there is a God. I know that this God is not only real, but he's very personal. He's intimately involved with our lives. He loves us. And he provides good things. First and foremost being our redemption through Jesus Christ. He promises to be with us always, to teach us, to comfort, to protect, to guide. And he has a wonderful plan for each of us that we have not even thought of or could possibly imagine that he unfolds to us one day at a time. As I thought about these truths during my prayer time that morning, I acknowledge that God did not promise me that Jerry would be by my side forever or that I would remain healthy or that my children would be happy. What he did promise me was himself, that he would be there today and forever, whatever my need, and that I know that he is loving and that he is strong. I want my heart to be secure and my body to react like David did in the Psalms when he quoted in Psalm 16, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. If I had to sum up what my hope is in one sentence, I think I would state that my hope simply is a personal relationship with the living God. Thanks. Do you want to love life, see good days? Now listen to what Peter said. Set apart Christ as Lord in your life and then trust him enough to live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and be humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Do not fear what they fear. and Do not let them make you anxious. If you want the good life, submit to the good Lord. And again, our submission is not a burden that we sadly bear. Our submission is joy and life and peace. It is the good life. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we can see the truth. That submission to you is freedom. That your commands are not burdensome. They are life and peace. They are our joy. Lord, we recognize that apart from your spirit, opening our eyes, apart from your spirit, changing our heart, opening us to you, giving us the strength to obey, uh, we couldn't uh, respond to any of this. But we ask your spirit to be powerful in each of us. Lord, we want to lay our lives before you, to really make you Lord in our hearts. We worship you, that you love us enough to teach us. You love us enough to be intimate in our lives. We want to respond to that. Make you Lord in our lives. Amen.